So, Romans 6, and we'll start with verse 15. Uh, we are making some progress. <laughs> this is an important chapter to me. It's not the watershed chapter. The watershed chapter of uh, Romans, it's, if you think of Romans in a chiastic kind of structure, the watershed chapter is chapter 8. Everything in Romans 1 through 8 builds up to that chapter. Everything after Romans 8 comes down out of that chapter. Uh, and so uh, that's going to be the chapter probably we spend the most time with. But chapter 6, along the way, builds some important building blocks that we need in order to really appreciate chapter 8 and, and all the rest of Romans. So, um, Sabrina, would you read for us verses 15 to 19? What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. Your Bible apparently divides the paragraphs differently than mine. <laughs> uh, but I think this one fits with that. Uh, I'm speaking in human terms. So, what is a slavery... You see, he's speaking in human terms. This is the way they were reading the covenant. Uh, originally, the covenant was setting you free from slavery of all kinds. Because in God there is freedom. And in the, new co in the covenant language of, of Sinai, you have God saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is how you are to live as free people. In other words, and, and, and yet what happened is that they were so hidebound by ancient Near Eastern treaties that they came to view the covenant as another ancient Near Eastern treaty. And in an ancient Near Eastern treaty, there was no such thing as freedom. The suzerain, who is the overlord, would tell his adherents to the treaty, you are now free from so-and-so, and you are my vassals. And you will be, treat me loyally. The term used is love, but love doesn't have the connotation we have today of love. And you, will, you will treat me with loyalty, that is love. And you will obey me or else, and there's this long list of curses. You will be cursed if you do this. You will be cursed if you do that. And there's a long list of that. Uh, so, really, in, in reality, what happened is they were set free from another, from another overlord and placed under the slavery of another overlord, one, over, one overlord to another. So they became slaves. There was no such thing as freedom. And that's how I believe the Jews came to view the covenant, as uh, another kind of slavery to Yahweh. Yahweh is our slave master now. Mm. So, so Paul uses this because of their natural limitations. So, okay, you're slaves of obedience or you're slaves 
of sin. So he's taking apart the argument that, oh, because we're under grace, we can do anything we want. Still have that argument today. And Paul says, no, should we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that you present your, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the ones you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness? And he says he thanks God that you've been set free from sin. And the question is, if Paul is using speaking in terms according to their natural limitations, is it possible we're really not slaves of God? I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the watershed chapter and, and point out something. Although he always represents himself as slaves. Yeah, I'm Christ. a slave of Christ. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you wonder if he did that tongue in cheek. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, verse 15, Romans 8. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. So somewhere between chapters 6 and 8, he's made a shift in metaphor. And he's saying, really, when you're slaves of obedience, you are are free. And how does that work? I want you to notice verse 16 again. In 8? In 8, in 6. In 6, verse 16. Do you not know that if you pre- present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience that leads to righteousness. I have students tell me sometimes in my God and Human Suffering class that they have... Uh, they they think we're really not free. We have a whole time where we talk about are we free? What is freedom? And and they they tell me we're not free because like it's this way: you either do what God says or you die, and mm-hmm. there's no freedom in that. Mm-hmm. The way they say. I think Paul's trying to make something clear here. That it isn't quite like that. It's it's not a. Because the assumption is made usually that you either obey God or he's going to kill you. But the truth is, Paul says, that sin leads to death. This isn't about uh, being not free because you're caught between a person who accepts you if you're righteous and kills you if you're not. You're free only if you follow God. Because sin leads to death. And, and now we can understand freedom. Now it opens up the door to say, yes, in God we are truly free. Okay, so let's go to verse 20. And Adrian, would you please read verses 20 to the end of the chapter? Sure. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin 
and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now he takes that one sentence that we just read and, and really intensifies it, uh, emphasizes it. Your version, uh, which I don't know what version it is. Uh, I think it's NLT. Uh, NLT. Yeah. It's NIV. Oh, it's NIV. Okay. NIV. Okay. Uh, it does a little more interpretation, but um, in verse 21 at the last part of the verse, it says, the end of those things is death. Uh, and the word end is telos in Greek, which it kind of is like a period. It's like a punctuation point. It's the end of the sentence. And so the end of those things, you run, you're going down this pathway and you get to the end, it's death. Uh, so I think he's making it very, very clear. The end of righteousness is eternal life. But now that you've been, set, you've been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life. Some slavery, right? Mm-hmm. I, I really think he is speaking of their na- in terms of their natural limitations here. He's using a metaphor they're really into uh, to try to get this across. And then, of course, his final point, for the wages of sin is death. Isn't it interesting? We have to earn death. But mm-hmm. salvation is mm-hmm. a free gift. Mm-hmm. You don't get wages if you haven't earned them. I, I had a we had a counselor who was in charge of retention. He was our retention coordinator. His name was Monty Perry, and he worked up in the enrollment services area. And I every once in a while I'd end up in his office over a problem student I had who was not coming to class and wasn't doing their homework. And uh, I would say something like, "I'm going to have to give him an F or something like that." And Monty would look at me and say, "No." He's earned an F. He had to work to get that F. <laughs> he had to work and work. <laughs> I don't think that me- that uh, analogy works as well <laughs> as as the the real concept that Paul sees sin as legalism. And who who works harder than a legalist? They work very very hard trying to to, in their own strength, do things. Uh, and it all is forced and, and contrived and, and manipulated and controlled by them. Uh, they work very hard. And the wages of that is death. And, and sin, if, if you broaden sin, of course, sin isn't just legalism. But you think of the sinful things that happen in our world are byproducts of a certain understanding of reality that is similar to law and legalism. You think of other religions in the world who all have salvation by works as their kind of common denominator, which led Ellen White to say that the principle of salvation by works is the, is the heart of all other religions. Well, if it becomes the heart of Christianity, what happens? <laughs> We lose our, our religion, in a sense. It becomes now a religion of works. And so, sin, if you think about even atheism, who, who athe- atheists pride themselves in being very moral. Mm-hmm. But they have to work hard to be that way. Mm-hmm. It's, still, it's still a, quote, religion of works. So, 
I think if we were to go back far enough, and of course that's been one of my studies uh, for the past 31 years, <laughs> has been to uh, study where we got off the God's plan mm -hmm. in the beginning. And I've, I've gone back to Mesopotamia. Mm -hmm. And I've studied ancient Mesopotamia and discovered that law was invented by the Mesopotamians. The, the whole, they didn't understand the term law, but they had court cases that they used uh, as kind of, not as law in the sense that we use it today, but in the sense of this is, this is the court case, this is what we decided in this case, so this is what you, the, the judges should go by. And the judges didn't always follow it. But the whole concept of contractual relationships, of, of uh, treaties, of taking someone to court, of keeping certain societal rules, all of that is Mesopotamia. They were steeped in, in quote, quote, righteousness by works. When you say Mesopotamia, I'm sorry, but I'm just trying to timeline... Is that um, well? It started with the Sumerians. And where does can you tell me where that fits as far as creation and Noah and Abraham? Do you know what I'm saying? Um, Mesopotamians. The earliest Mesopotamian society is probably Sumer, uh, though there's some overlap with the Akkadian-speaking peoples. Mm -hmm. They start around 4,000 BC. And where does that fit in the story of in Genesis? In, in Genesis, that fits. Um, Right after, it fits the Tower of Babel story. Okay. Uh, I, I would put it there okay. rather than put it with Noah. So they began this superstructure of very institutional, economic, legal, royal connotations of top-down control, of uh, control and manipulation mm -hmm. as opposed to a living a life in trust. Where, you, where faith and love are the key ingredients that determine the kind of life you live. Mm. So this is very Babylonian, and the wages of sin is death. They, they invented sin on a new level, and I think, I personally believe, and I have some biblical evidence for this, the Bible speaks of gods, uh, false gods, the idols, as demons. They worship false gods who are demons. I believe that's in Deuteronomy, somewhere in Moses' last words in Deuteronomy at the end of the book. Um, and it's also, I think, in one of the Psalms that the, the, God, the false gods that the people worshipped were demons. And then you go to the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14, who we've always ascribed to Lucifer. That king is most likely Marduk. The reason I say that is because most kings in Isaiah are named. The king of Babylon isn't named. And one of Marduk's epithets was king of Babylon. So I believe that the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14 is Marduk, and that Marduk was Satan's alter ego. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he set up that worship so they would actually be worshiping him. And there's a whole myth around Marduk that uh, suggests that Marduk usurped somewhat the positions of the other gods and ascribed them all to himself. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> uh, and so I think that this whole Babylonian model is Satan's attempt to improve on the government of God. 
the whole legal, economic, royal superstructure is Satan's invention and his attempt to improve on God's government. So it's sin. It is what sin is. Uh, we were not meant to be valued for what we earn, for what we make, for what we do. We were made to be valued because we are created in the image of God. And that's the bottom line. So there's a lot in this verse that I can go on and on about. But, uh, so I'm curious, what would you come up with? Like, okay, he was writing within their, their metaphor. Well, the Roman Empire was greatly influenced by the Greek, um, Greek civilization. And the Greco-Roman Empire together was greatly influenced by Babylonia. And like the whole, you were saying, like using human terms and using the word slavery, uh-huh. because that's what they understood. And, and of course, I'm you, curious to you know understand what that would be today. What would be the word? It wouldn't probably wouldn't be slavery because we don't. I don't know. Or would it? We be? don't. We don't. Would there be another well, we, metaphor? We, I wish John Noons were here. <laughs> he could help us out. Yeah. Could it be like a contract or something? Well, certainly contractual agreements is mm-hmm. the. I mean, we don't do anything without a contract, do we? We don't trust anyone without a contract. Yeah. Unless it's our closest. Sometimes I ask my students to tell me if. So, have you made a contract with your roommate recently? And they all look at me like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I thought, well, why haven't you? Well, because I trust my roommate, you know? <laughs> and it's like, we don't need a contract. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you read the story of David and Jonathan. Mm hmm. What did they do? They made a treaty between themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and David had, was bound by that treaty. He couldn't change from it, even after Jonathan died. It's, it's a legal contract, a contractual relationship. And, that, and throughout the ancient Near East, that was just, it was embedded in societies. You didn't do anything without a contract. So that's the closest yeah. we have today, yeah. I think, to slavery. Um, however, there's a lot of, un- uh, of underground slavery in our society. A lot. Shall we start with verse chapter seven? This is a this is a, almost a chapter you need to read as a whole uh, because it's all he he kind of wrangles this topic <laughs> for verse after verse. So I never. Oh, oh, oh Daniel, I was going to try to call him by his pastor. Escamilla. Escamilla. Okay. What verses? Uh, start uh, verses 1 to 3, please. Do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on, on a person only during his life? Why is the question? Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her, if her husband dies, she is discharged from the law concerning the husband. Accordingly, she will be called the adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if the marries, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. I think we better read the next section too. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to read that? Please. Four through six. Therefore, my brethren, you also are made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be joined by to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. 
For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. He really is using being bound to the law as sin. And we died to that. Get, and, and I think I have to go back to the illustration I used last week. Poor Susan's going to have to hear this again. I, I went to an academy that back in the 70s and 60s, almost all academies were very rule-based. And rules were more important than students. And I told last week the class some of the bad behaviors of that kind of rule-based dominionism, you might say. We had a student who was a bad kid. I mean, that was his label. And everybody picked on him. The faculty, the students, fellow students. Uh, he was always getting tortured by other male students. Uh, and the faculty would walk by and not intervene. And he, I, I don't recall that I knew he ever did anything overtly terrible except one time. He just could talk in class when he wasn't supposed to, talk in the library when he wasn't supposed to. And, and occasionally he gave the teachers a hard time. Uh, but he was a bad kid. And I uh, one day found my boss. I worked in the records office for the registrar. And Sorry, Thunderbird. Oh. <laughs> yes. Have you been there? We live there. Yeah. You live there. <laughs> she was jumping up and down in front of the window looking out and yelling, get him, get him, go get him. Well, this kid had taken a hose, very high-pressure water, and shot out the eye of the dean's cat. And the dean of Bina Boys was not happy. So um, I went outside to see what the hullabaloo was about <laughs> and uh, skid to a halt. There was the dean, who was a big man. This kid that was so bad was a little scrawny kid. Had him by the nap of the neck with a bucket of water and was trying to jam his head down into the bucket of water. And nearby was a very tall, strapping young man ready to help the dean. And I remember just standing there in shock. I guess I knew he had done something bad. But to see force and authority take force and, and do something like that to him was just very hard. And, and you know, at, at that time, he rarely got in trouble for anything he did. Uh, he had come, he had been kicked out for a year, had gone to public school, had now come back, and he was actually trying very hard to do what was right. And what l probably led him to do the cat thing was something that the dean did that just really upset him and triggered him. But he would sit in the library and other people would be talking and he would get the blame. Mm -hmm. I watched it happen. So what I've tried to suggest is that when we become rule-bound and, and everything is about keeping the rules and not having the love of Jesus in our hearts and not having a relationship of love and trust, the result is we become bad. We really do. And we can't, we can't keep the law of love and keep the rules. The two are, in a sense, mutually exclusive. Because when you're rule-based, 
you are in a legal sense, you only care about legally towing the line. And how many of us uh, watch for a cop before we speed? (laughs) 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 How many of us obey, tow the line, and get legally as close to the edge as possible? How many of us are minimalists? We do only what we have to do, and we quibble about what we don't have to do. That's all that part of that legal model, and it's totally outside of Christ. Because in Christ, it's a love and trust relationship that naturally leads us to the best practices and the best kinds of doing. And we don't think about how we're doing it. We don't think about how we're keeping the rules. And, and we loosen up a little bit in terms of our stringencies. I used to, when I, I was a legalist before my conversion. I was converted when I was 14. And I, was, I was the most critical person before my, right before my conversion in the world. And I, I believed I could get my way to heaven by keeping the commandments. God would have to see me there because I kept the commandments so well. I was used as a model by teachers of what you should be like which didn't help me socially at all. (laughs) (laughs) So I remember back in those days keeping Sabbath by worrying. I worried all Sabbath day long that I was breaking it. And it was no fun. Sabbath was a trial as a child. And my mother tried to make it fun for us kids. She'd invent all kinds of things that we could do on Sabbath most of the time it was walking in the woods or taking a drive, which I hated being in a car. But <laughs> that's because I got car sick so easily. And we were in Oregon, in the back, back curvy roads of Oregon. So we were in rural Oregon. But I remember that being the essence of Sabbath keeping, was trying to keep, to keep the Sabbath, trying hard not to break the Sabbath. And then I was converted. And suddenly... Sabbath-keeping was a totally different picture. It was a delight because God was now the center of my life. I knew who He was. I knew how wonderful He was. I was in this love and trust relationship with Him. And and I had figured out or, or had been taught to read the Bible to find out what it says about God. And so the Bible became a completely different book, completely different emphasis. And... I remember sitting down in the classroom where I teach every, every day, <laughs> listening to my, my religion professor uh, talking about Sabbath-keeping. And he was not legalistic about it. He was trying to paint a better picture of Sabbath-keeping. And I suddenly realized, he mentioned, you know, you can't climb trees on Sabbath. And I was like, oh no, last Sabbath. Last Sabbath, a group of us went out past, uh, or towards Helmer's, out out past the farm. And we had our picnic lunch under the oak trees. And afterwards, we climbed the oak trees. And we sang hymns. (laughs) 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 And uh, I never thought a thing about it. I never thought about it. In my old frame of reference, that would be breaking the Sabbath and shame on me. In my new frame of reference, no, we were celebrating God's creation. We were thoroughly enjoying nature. And I thought, wow, I'm free. Mm. I'm free. That's, to me, the difference. And that's, to me, what Paul's talking about here. Uh, 
And uh, what is interesting is this analogy he uses. Mm -hmm. About a marriage? That about a marriage. Yeah. Uh, he uses marriage model because marriages in his day were contractual. They were not because of love. They were because of status. You married a higher class so that you could raise your class system. You, you married for money. Uh, you married because the family wanted you to marry that person. It was all a contractual agreement. You did not marry for love. And it had been that way since the Babylonians. The Babylonians are the ones who were the most contractual in their way of thinking. And the Assyrians followed suit. So, it's interesting that once you die, you're free. <laughs> and Paul's using that as the analogy for the Christian life. Once you die to that legalism, once you die to, yeah. to all of that old style of living, you're free and you've been raised from the dead in order that you might bear fruit for God. And now you're alive. Because in a contractual agreement, there's no life. Have you ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? Mm-hmm. Um, you remember the, pe the piece where, um, do you love me? Mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> I don't know, I've cooked for you, I've made your bed, I've swept the floor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, what more can I do to love you? You know, works. But do you love me? Mm -hmm. And, and I, I hear the voice of God in that, actually. God saying, do you love me? You, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But if you just keep my commandments and don't love me, it, that's slavery. Well, I think bondage. part of that song is also, they're trying to figure out, well, is this love? I guess it's love. Well, we're together. What, else, what else would love be? Kind of trying to yeah. understand what is love. When you haven't experienced it, you can't understand it. Yeah. So, I guess it is. I've done all these things. So... You haven't seen Fiddler on the Roof, or have you? Just portions. Just portions. I've played the music for Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen to the songs, but not the movie. Yeah. yeah. Someday you ought to watch it. Yeah. It's very interesting. For lots of reasons. Yeah. So while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. You see, a legal, in a legal relationship, you do it because you have to. And solemn submission, Ellen White says, to the will of our Father will develop the, spirit, the character of a rebel. Mm. So, this, so this, this, our sinful passions are aroused by the law, by, legal, by this legal contractual kind of relationship. We're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we are slaves not under the old written code, but under the new life of the Spirit. And Paul calls that a law. The law of the Spirit. You've heard, you've heard of the law of the Spirit. But that law is descriptive law. It's design law. It's, it's the law that describes how things work. Uh, and that's the kind of law that we keep in the Spirit. In other words, we can look very much like a legalist, do the same things, but we have a completely different reason for doing it. It's because we see the sense of it, we, because we are now in the mode of love, and the law is the law of love, and why we wouldn't kill our neighbor, because we love our neighbor, and that sort of thing.
And that's the part that we can't... I always go back to the virgins, the ten virgins. Like you said... It was you can't borrow same. that, can you? No. It, it, we can look exactly the same, the way we're living. But if I'm coming from the law of the Spirit and someone else is coming from the law of legalism, um, I can't share with them my experience Mm-mm. as to why Mm-mm. I'm doing things differently or why I am free in how I'm living. Yeah. And, and they can't comprehend what you're doing. No. That's the hard part. That's why you can't share it. No. Yeah. Because they haven't experienced it. Right. So what is... I, I, I can just go back to living in love, what, loving our neighbors, because I don't know how we can share that in a way... Well, I always go back to the parenting thing because I'm in the midst of it, you know. But, right. you know, how can I just... I have to trust that God does His work, and yeah. I, I don't know. It's it's, hard. Hard. it's very frustrating because I saw that in a certain meeting this week um, where a pastor was uh, telling stuff that was not welcome Mm -hmm. by some in the room. Mm -hmm. And um, to try to explain to them in a way, they found the way of light and love to be frightening. Mm -hmm. Because they, they couldn't control it. And I think that this is one of the chief ingredients of the difference between the life of the Spirit and the life under the law. The life under the law allows us to control things. Uh, that's why it's so... I mean, all idolatry is about controlling your God. It's putting your God in a box, in a, in a shape, in a form, and, and bowing down to worshiping it and giving it what it needs so that you can manipulate it to give you what you want. And... It's legalism is the same way. It's, it's idol. It's a species of idolatry. You you put God in this legal box, and therefore you can control Him because you do things His way, and then He'll give you things you want, and you, you have this transactional relationship. In the life of the Spirit, we lose that control. We no longer are our own own masters. Love, and the Spirit of love, and truth controls us. The love of Christ constrains us. And it's, it's frightening to a person who's desperate for control because they're, they're really scared. They, they, there's, there's something deep inside that says, this is skewed, I'm lost, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not found. Okay? And so when you take the rug out from under them and say your security blanket is not enough, it won't save you, they get frightened. When Morris Venden was pastor here at the PUC Church in the 70s, I was a student here. The greatest entertainment on campus was Wednesday night prayer meeting. <laughs> and all, a lot of the students flocked to the Wednesday night prayer meeting because there was a war going on between Morris Venden and the community over righteousness by faith. <laughs> and he would he would allow he would he would speak for a while about. 20, 30 minutes, and then he would open the floor for discussion, and he'd had, had two microphones spaced at different places in the church, wow. and, and there would be this line. <laughs> and the legalists would go round and round and round with him trying to argue against what he was preaching. It was a great entertainment for college students. <laughs> but I, I remember that just the incomprehensiveness, uh, the inability to understand 
what he was trying to tell us. What's interesting about that is that he, he opened the floor coming from the righteousness by faith perspective. If it was flipped, I don't think the floor would have The floor been wouldn't flipped. have been open. No, we would have been told dogmatically, you be- this is what you believe and this is it, yep. and you better line up. And if you don't, there's the yeah. door. <laughs> yeah. You know. mm-hmm. There's no fear in freedom. Mm-mm. Perfect love casts out fear. Mm-hmm. For fear has to do with punishment. And those who fear are not perfected in love. It was really interesting. Two weeks ago, I went back home and spent time with the family. Um, and long story short, we had a Jew and a Muslim come to my brother's youth group. And mom was talking to them about Adventism. And they're like, okay, so what's like one of the fundamental things? And they got into the works versus faith and the like religion based on faith to the 15-year-old Muslim boy who's coming as a representative from Israel and, like, telling his story. And he's like, wait, what? How does that... It's completely foreign. Because mm-hmm. I didn't expect it to be foreign. I just thought it would be, like... A very it's incomprehensible. Perspective. But he didn't know what we meant at all. Yeah. You know experience. This is, this is now the crux of real spirituality is it is experiential mm-hmm. and when we make it esoteric I should say esoteric uh, when we make it esoteric and when we uh, codify it and when we legislate it and we control it we lose the experience mm-hmm. of it there's something about letting go and letting God love us that is extremely hard for human nature. And, and part of it is because our experience has been a lot of pain. We've had people hurt us. We've had people let us down. We've had people break our trust. So we've hurt a lot. And one way of dealing with our pain is to control. Control ourselves. Control other people. Harden our hearts. Just... We're, we're tough enough to handle this. We can, we can deal with this on ourselves, by ourselves, instead of reaching out to God for healing. I see the Holy Spirit as the member of the Godhead who is with us all the time and who embraces us with his love mm. so that the atmosphere around us is one of his love. That's the life of the Spirit to me. And that's what produces the fruit in us of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. So it's, it's a completely different construct. So the, the Babylonian model is the model that we invented to try, to try to make up for our lack of trust. We only put, lay down the law because we don't trust people. We only have a contract because we don't trust people. We only uh, legislate and control because we can't trust one another. Mm-hmm. That's our invention in the, in the spirit, in the life that Jesus came to reveal. We can come to trust God because he is, we find him to be trustworthy. Because we, in his love, we know he, we can trust him. Do you also believe that direct, all through the Bible, when God chose his people all along, and also Jesus came here, he formed his people who were the disciples, was God trying to also form 
a government that would be God's government, mm -hmm. that people really come mm -hmm. to understand it. Even the Old Testament would say, yeah. people will see. Who you, you see, were. you see the glimpses here and there. I, yeah. I have come to refer to that as the minor voice of God's preferred will. The minor voice. The minor voice. And the reason it's minor is because it's less frequent in the Old Testament. The, there's the major voice of God's will adapted to the will of the people. And the best example, easiest example, is Israel wants a king. God doesn't want them to have a king. He doesn't want a hierarchical system. But he acquiesces to their demands and he gives them the king. So that's, that's the major voice at work. So uh, the minor, and that's the voice you hear most frequently in the Old Testament. The, because people, the, people's the people's voice, voice that God is adapting to and mm -hmm. allowing to have their way. But, but at periodic points, especially at the beginning of narrative sequences, there's always a statement by God as to his preferred will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the best examples is the conquest. Yeah. Um, in Exodus 23, God says, I will throw out the inhabitants of the land before you, and I, and I will do it, and there will be no death. No one's killed. Yeah. And the next thing you know, Israel is like, we will do it, and we will fight. And, and you can actually trace that clear through Joshua and the fall of Jericho. So that's what I've come to call that. Yes, the minor voice is active, and it is, it is far more often than we have realized. But it's still it's less frequent than God's voice adapting to the people's will. Because of the less frequency of our willingness to follow that. <laughs> you know, let's not, blame, let's not blame the Israelites. You know, Ourselves. Saying, I see it I'm in myself right all here. the time. That's what I'm saying. It's always been the same. Mm -hmm. It's, no. I'm not all blaming right. it all. I'm saying me. <laughs> so, um, we have stopped now with verse 6. Yeah, you did mention also the fruits of the Spirit, isn't it, in Galatians? Says, Galatians, th yes. There's, this, there's no law? There's no law against this. Well, this, it, there's no law for it. There's no law against it. It's outside law. Uh, you, can't, you can't control someone's love. You, you, can, you can't, if you say, you shall love me, can you get that by that kind of action? No, you can't. Love, love begets love. Love gives rise to love. Um, I, I love the statement in Desire of Ages, page 22. Only by love is love awakened. It is not won by force or authority. It cannot be commanded, she says. Now, Jesus does command it, but he's doing that major voice to meet us where we are. Because, you know, it's like, remember the Sabbath day. Should we have to be reminded that we have to keep Sabbath, we should want to keep Sabbath, we should look forward to Sabbath. But no, we're so sl such slaves of work that we think God is depriving us of something and saying, you should remember the Sabbath. Love me. I love you. Will you love me back? Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's, it's something that can't be commanded. Mm -hmm. So um, we're going to have to stop with that so we can get to church. Which is the ultimate freedom. You know, you were talking about your students mm -hmm. in the beginning. How can mm -hmm. this be free? And he's telling us what's happening, the curses and the blessings. That yeah. we, we're scared of freedom. I think, uh, what's his name, did a sermon on that that was amazing. Um, Paul McGraw. Oh, Paul McGraw. How we can't handle freedom. It's hard for us. Well, we want control. Yeah. 
we can't even handle our own freedom. It's like, no, yeah. no. We want control. <laughs> we, w- we want structure and control yeah. because we don't feel secure. We don't, we don't trust. We don't have love. We may be thinking we may be able to avoid pain. Exactly. Okay. Save ourselves. And because we don't trust God to save us. Something we all have to, we all have to wrestle with, even when we've been set free. It's so easy. And I think this is what chapter 7 is going to lead us into, is Paul's wrestling match with, with freedom versus slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the promise of a life of freedom in the Spirit. We ask that we might fully and completely embrace that freedom and fully embrace you and your love for us and receive it and allow it to work its transforming power in our hearts. I pray that uh, you will be with our brothers and sisters who simply do not comprehend this and and for the, our friends uh, in Islam and in Judaism who also do not understand it. We pray that the eye, their eyes may be opened, that they might find you as you really are and be led to trust and love you. Bless us and keep us during this week ahead, and may our next Sabbath be as bright and beautiful as this one. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.